the book was originally a memoir about coming to America. My life and everything got much more complicated. So I put a lot of stuff in the book to show you my history and how it connects to what's happening right now. So my history was growing up with a guy in Cuba, Fidel Castro. And from the first time that I heard Trump speak back in the primaries, I was like, wow, this sounds just like the things Castro said. This is pretty dangerous. So it's a new year, and 2024 is going to be an interesting one. So you already know by now that I've got another podcast called Modern Minorities, where we share minority voices for all our majority years. And every once in a while, I use that show to have a deeper chat with comics creators who I really admire. Late last year, I accidentally discovered Worm, a Cuban-American odyssey, the graphic memoir by artist and activist Ivela Rodriguez that tells the story of his childhood in Cuba. Worm might just be one of, if not the best graphic novel that I read in 2023. So we'll see if I can get Ryan to read it soon. Idella has created more than 200 magazine covers for the likes of The New Yorker and Time Magazine, Newsweek and Der Spiegel, which, as one NPR journalist recently said, are singular, striking, and often controversial. I guarantee you've seen some of Idella's work in the Trump era of American politics. Just Google Idella Rodriguez magazine cover and you'll see what I'm talking about. Adele's latest work is his graphic memoir that tells the story of his childhood in Cuba and his family's decision in 1980 to join the hazardous flotilla of refugees known as the Marial Boatlift. The graphic novel only just came out in November, and I kind of accidentally discovered it, but once I started reading it, I could not put it down. In Worm, which is a term that Fidel Castro used for Cubans who chose to leave the country, Adele uses his own life to capture not just what it's like to grow up under an authoritarian government, but also to sound a caution from the run-up to the election of 2016 to January 6, 2020, to the future we are facing in this election year. So beyond Adele's personal story, which I'd highly recommend you read in his graphic memoir, I really wanted to get at the why for his activism and storytelling approach. So I hope you enjoy my Modern Minorities chat with artist and activist Adele Rodriguez, and be sure to check out his graphic memoir, Worm, A Cuban-American Odyssey. Adele, thank you so much for coming on the pod. It's great to meet you. Thank you. So for folks who may or may not have read your book, which I'm obviously a very new fan of, I don't know, do you ever get asked where you're from? Yeah, actually, that's uh, that's partly how the book came about. Yeah. When I, Whenever I met uh, editors uh, in conversations, probably about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, they were like, you know, so where are you from? And then in that conversation, I would share where I'm from and a bit of my story. And immediately I would hear, that's a book. <laughs> well, but what's what's but what's the quick answer like when you're just at a party with your mm-hmm. with your friends with your wife on the street? What's the quick answer? Do you say Miami? Do you say New York, New Jersey? Uh, yeah. No, I, I would say, uh, where I'm from. I would say Cuba. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Havana, Cuba, or um, Cuba. Yeah. I usually go. You know, you go back to the beginning. At least in my mind, uh-huh. I wouldn't say I'm from Miami. That would be the second or third uh-huh. option. <laughs> and in New Jersey is is. Is where I have my body happens to be at right now, but it is yeah. not like I don't feel where I'm where I'm from is where I'm originally from. Well, let, let's talk about that. I mean, because you're from El Gabriel, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. can you? Um, there, I mean, obviously, you read the book. There's so many stories, but what's one of those kind of stories from your youth? And it doesn't have to be so much about the message of the book, but just mm-hmm. what's a, what's a story from growing up? What's one of those things that you remember? 
the most. I think that what I remember the most were were, were stories of um, just playing out in the streets with my my friends, uh, you know, which uh, yeah I took for granted back then. But now living in the United States, you just don't see that much much of that happening. So mm-hmm. we lived in the street, you know, playing games and you know hunting for birds with uh, you know slingshots and um, just wild kids roaming around. <laughs> uh, like shirtless and shorts and uh, barefoot, you know, which no kids run around barefoot anymore. That is what I remember of my my youth. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't want to say it's this idyllic youth. It's just was the youth that you knew. Right. But so much of the book talks about the perspective of your parents and what they had during their youth. And can you, I mean, there was like this fear of your youth for you and your sister that parents were slowly kind of realizing how did you when did that start to realize the the experience your parents were having versus yours when did you start to realize the difference between those two things i you know i i honestly wasn't that aware of what was happening because i think that my my in terms of politics and i knew i was surrounded by it but i was you know living it in it so i didn't fish and water yeah i didn't really have an outside perspective but my father had lived before the revolution you know when when Cuba was you know, a functioning like democratic state, even though it was yeah. a ton of corruption. Yeah. But it, it was more, there were goods in the stores, there were, you know, imports, you know, so it was a, a flowing economy and he knew that. So when, when the revolution came in and then all of a sudden there were all these rules and these things that your that kids had to do. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was, he never, you know, saluted a government <laughs> in school, you know, it was <laughs> yeah. just, so he, he was his own man. Yeah, right? he was seeing things. He saw things in a different perspective. And that's when, when him and my mother started having conversations about what to do with this because he was mostly concerned about uh, us growing up and becoming part of a system that he didn't like mm-hmm. or serving a system that, that he didn't think was human. And the, the idea that I would have to be sent into the military to, to fight overseas or that my, yeah. my sister was caught up in, in, in administration issues at school yeah, you know, it's not what he. They felt that they were kind of losing their children uh, to the state. Do you think that was the that was the tipping point? Because for a while, when you read the your work, it's your dad's making do. Your mom and dad are kind of behaving a way they're supposed to, but at the same time, on the edges, still kind of being his own man with the entrepreneurial stuff, with the photography, etc. And they were kind of making do. In fact, if, I think in the book, your mom makes the arguments. Hey, we got this. It, it'll be fine. We'll get yeah. to Spain somehow. Yeah. What was the tipping point? You and your you and your sister. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was twofold. It was us and what was happening mostly with my sister because she was a bit older and they were already already being she was being kind of treated differently or restricted at school because the the teachers and the government knew that we were trying to leave through Spain. And, um, and the other part was my dad was, um, he felt pressure that he was going to, um, you know, be jailed or be punished for some of the work that he was doing, you know, in black marketing and trying to get materials for his photography business and and other things. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of spying going on of our family for basically trying to figure out ways to get by. We weren't the only ones. There were other ones that were also being that. And all those pressures came to a head and my, my father just thought, well, if we try to leave through Spain, 
that could take three, four, five years, or it could get caught up in problems. And and here came this boat lift where we could just jump on a boat and get out of here as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, the images in your illustration, the storytelling is just so visceral and vivid. How much of that is retelling what's in your mind, or is it reinforced memory of kind of the things you piece together from hearing what your dad said, what your mom said, what everyone will say? Again, it's a combination of things. You know, it's 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 sort of yeah, like yeah, yeah. From the time that I left and I, I grew up in Miami in the eighties, I kept processing these these images. Like, why did we leave? What's going on? Trying to understand the politics of it all. Yeah, but also had those moments kind of ingrained in my mind. But at the same time, I felt like I needed to match them up to realities mm-hmm. of what was happening in the world and uh, the Cold War and the news and also the reality mm-hmm. of my parents' life. And that's when I sat down with both of them and, and started having interviews yeah. so I can get to the actual reasons they left. I think we see immigrants arrive here and we don't really understand why they're here or, or the reasons we just say, oh, there's immigrants, there's 2,000 of them at the border. We, we got to deal with them. It's almost yeah. immigrants here are treated like a problem. And I wanted to explain all, you know, everything that goes into someone finally leaving their country. So people would yeah, maybe, It's a heavy decision. It's yeah, a heavy decision. Yeah. So people would have more empathy for them. That was my my concept for this. The boat lift itself, right? The, the moment your parents make the decision, your, your family in Miami you know, getting things every, all the, all the setup, all the arrangements that start to happen, mm. the experience of it, like the, the camps and, and the boat lift itself. How much of that, because that happened to you. I mean, you were an adolescent. Mm-hmm. You were probably around the same age as my kids when this happened. Yeah. How, how old were you when the boat lift happened? Eight. I was eight. How much of that is, is it like ingrained in your memory or it's just this big kind of dreamlike thing that happened? Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it, it's not, it doesn't, it never feels dreamlike at all it feels very specific mm-hmm. you know you know somewhere in between someone somewhere between the specific and the dreamlike <laughs> because the, the, the specific are are the little the details you know yeah and the the dreamlike is is the the fact where you look back and go that that really happened you know it was it was such an odd time yeah you know, so i wanted to capture the 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 dreamlike imagery and, and and things, but also get into how you specifically go from here to there. Oh, the paperwork that was taken from us and that made us yeah. kind of um, undocumented for a while there. Yeah, because they took away your passports. For yeah, hobby. we had no, we were just basically left into in, in a camp uh, with nothing. We had no ID, no information about us and um, told that we were, we were going to be taken to a boat eventually and, and then we're there in that camp forever. So we we couldn't, really go back home and we we were kind of in in, in detention camp, mm-hmm. you know so that's what it was i mean your work is is to me it was so moving it's like the same level of books like night mouse year of the rabbit you know best we could do you're not a graphic novelist you're, you're an artist and an activist first so what brought you to the medium of comics was it just once you started interviewing your parents yeah it was it was actually um i felt that it was uh, the the best way to tell my story and to tell this story. You know, mm-hmm. there have been a few books about the boat lift. Uh, there Before Night Falls uh, by Rinaldo Arenas, a book called uh, Finding Manana by another Cuban author. But they're they're written as memoir, you know, in, in you know in text. And I felt well, okay, so those that's already kind of been done. I wanted to do something that was visual, so 
it would have an impact on people that maybe don't pick up a, a novel to read or a younger younger generation so they really that are really into graphic novels so they can understand it and see the imagery. I think it really makes an impact when you see yeah. what what occurred in Cuba. I think you can you can maybe dismiss it if it's uh, in written form, but once you actually see what was done to people down there, I think um, a lot of people in this country would, would pay more attention to it. So um, that, I mean, that was part of the reason for the graphic novel. The other thing is that I, I draw for a living. <laughs> so I think, I think people would just expect that. <laughs> but yes, I was not, I've never been a, 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 like, you know, I didn't grow up with comic books in Cuba, definitely. Yeah. So once I arrived here, I wasn't really into comics like a lot of my friends were. I mean, I, I would pick up some comics you know, casually, but they also cost money. We didn't have any money in Miami. And so there was no extra cash to go to another comic shop. So I've never, but I, I as I grew older, I, I did, you know, become interested in, in, in reading some graphic novels, uh, but I, I've not been like fully into that world. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. Um, you know, I grew up, obviously, all the usual flavors of X-Men, Fantastic Four, Batman, that stuff. But, mm-hmm. and I, that's kind of where the, openness to the medium came but in kind of mm-hmm. 20s and 30s start to realize more stories can be told and, and i i feel like it's a medium that's somewhere between literature and film but mm-hmm. where it wins in my heart is film it's kind of a moving picture that just kind of washes over you and you know literature you have to read and imagine it in your mind but you're illustrating these points and you can get stuck on a page kind of poetry right like five lines of uh, of a poem well that's what i i'm I'm glad you said that's what i wanted you know so um my issue sometimes with graphic novels is they feel too airy right like yeah yeah you open a page and and it's like the sun came in and then it it feels like too much about um a reason to make drawings that you want to make and uh and the story can sometimes be a bit thin Mm -hmm. so i wanted a a book that you actually spent a while on that spread reading the details of, of, you know, politics and family and emotions and not, not sort of breeze through it. Yeah. This is a heavy meal, man. This is like yeah. a red steak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I, and I, I, I was like, oh my God, are people going to really go for this? And I've been like really surprised that a lot of people really are loving reading it. And also that the comics book folks have, have, got in touch with this is amazing is a, like a new way of to, of doing a a graphic novel uh which is much more you know yeah beefy you know and it's it's been great because i actually thought oh my god you know the the comics folks are just gonna be tearing into it <laughs> <laughs> but it hasn't been that way it's been no they've been it's been very welcoming and reviews of it uh from people that read comics regularly so that that's that's great to see yeah i mean your work in this book is, you know, it's mostly monochromatic. It's mostly black and white with one exception. And uh, I want to talk about that. The use of red and honestly later orange, right? Towards the end of the book. Right. Um, I think I know where you were going with the use of both of those. But can you talk to me about those choices? Was it intentional that certain people were red and others were not? Well, the the, the red was so much of my childhood was that, you know, definitely like the the, the earth in my town is very deep red, reddish brown. So that was good. You know, my father's car was red, the, but then also the, the the color of communism has always been attached with red. And my uniform, my mm-hmm. communist uh, school uniform was also red and white. So that that made sense 
for the beginning of the book, but then I saw, wow, it really does translate into other places throughout the book. And then I, I like minimal color. And um, I added a little bit like a shade of the red for when I arrived in Miami to create this pink color. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it's that. Miami. I'm like, I can't do harsh red here. <laughs> and then when I got to the chapters about about Trump, you know, it, I, I brought in the orange um, because it, it, so much of my work I'm known as creating this, this character that invaded our consciousness by using this one orange color. So I felt I really wanted to do that there. And, and I like how it throughout the book just gives you a little bit more, a little bit, you know, doesn't go into full color, but it gives you a little something different as you go through the book. Yeah. I mean, you alluded to your work about Trump in the era that we're living in. Um, you know, I, seen a lot of your magazine covers over the past several years, but I never connected them to the name behind the work. So yeah. I, I never was familiar with you Good. as an artist until reading this comic. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure you like that, right? <laughs> but not knowing the history of your art, right? Was it the rise of Trump that drove your art activism or was that something you were always doing because of how you grew up? No, I've always been doing work uh, about you know activist work or uh, political, I call it more like political art or political graphics, uh, going back to pretty much college at Pratt in Brooklyn. Then when yeah. I graduated, uh, I began doing a lot of op-eds for the New York Times that mostly dealt with political issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, working at Time Magazine, I created a lot of political, um, yep. you know, tinge graphics for, for, for the magazine and, and for many other clients. It was around 2014 that I started using the, saw that I could use the internet to kind of get my work out there uh, as to how I felt issues uh, should be treated mm -hmm. um, rather than sometimes the media does very neutral points of view on you know, both sidedism. Mm -hmm. That was with work dealing with terrorism and ISIS. And then, and then immediately the, the Trump uh, years appeared and, and I continued that sort of online activism uh, regarding uh, what Trump was uh, doing, and uh, and and then it it sort of went on from there. So it, it took off a lot, probably around 2015, 2016, um, mm -hmm. But I had been doing political illustrations for many years. Yeah, I mean, there is nothing both sidesism of your work. I, for those listening right now, like literally, you're on your phone. Just do a quick Google for you know Ido Rodriguez magazine cover or Time cover, and. Mm -hmm. These are stark, provocative statements, which, you know, ring true, right? To, to the thing we were all feeling. And, and I didn't see your book was going to go there because, again, I didn't know who you were when I, when I first picked up Worm. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you make the jump to the present day and to your activism in the current day. And obviously, your entire life story leads up to the reason you get to say this, the reason you have a unique point of view and vantage point. You know, it's funny when we, right before we record, I was like, I promise I'm not going to get fanboy about the comic, but I didn't mean to get political, but can you talk about the parallels between Castro and Trump? Because we're, we're in an election year when this episode is going to air. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they're, 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 there's so many of them. And, and I mean, I partly, um, uh, the book was originally, I started about 10 years ago. It was going to be a memoir about coming to America. Right. Right. A right. feel good story. Yeah. That, that was the book. Um, and then um, my life and everything got much more complicated. So it, book evolved as history was evolving, you know, over the last uh, six years. And, you know, one of the, when I started making my work, um, uh, my magazine covers, everyone's questions, what, what is this? Where did this come from? Why are you doing this? Right. So I, I'm, I 
you know, put a lot of stuff in the book to, to show you, you know, to show this is the history. This is my history and how it connects to what's happening right now. So my history was growing up with a, uh, a guy in Cuba, Fidel Castro, that would call people worm simply because they were against him or wanted to leave the country. And, and he would say it in speeches. Yeah. Now, actually, uh, someone that I just met yesterday, um, Michael Arndt, a, a designer, pointed out that, that the word vermin, which Trump just used, comes from the Latin ver, which is worm. So there are these constant similarities, like using words like worm or vermin, saying the press is the enemy of people, pointing out people in crowds and goading their fans to go beat them up. It goes on and on. And from the first time that I heard Trump speak back in 2015 in the primaries, I was like, wow, this, this sounds just like the things Castro said. This is pretty dangerous stuff. And I thought that we were treating Trump as a joke, mm -hmm. right, in this country. Like the media was just lapping it up, thinking it was crazy, wild. And I'm like, this isn't crazy and wild and funny. It's extremely dangerous. So I took it upon me to start making images that would show people that follow, not just people follow my work, but others in the media. And, and, it would, and people that, that follow my work by their nature are art directors, designers, editors, mm -hmm. who I've known for 15, 20 years. And if I put stuff in front of their faces, they would you know, get a hint that this was a much more serious uh, thing happening and perhaps hire me to do work like that for their magazine. And eventually that, that came to be. That's a very hard thing to do in this country, to get the media to actually be hardcore and critical yeah, in, yeah. in a tough way, because especially in the middle of primary season and all, because they, they, we've always treated all candidates in this sort of like neutral way. And I was like, you know, I don't think this is the time for the media to be neutral here. You really have to stand and, and stand up for, for freedom of the press. <laughs> yeah, our way of life is at stake. Our, right? way, yeah. our way of life. And as I was doing this, you know, myself, I'm thinking, wait, am I going too far here? What am I doing? <laughs> I, I felt something, but I also, you know, as a, as a human, yeah. think, well, I don't want to take advantage of my powers and my powers being art and, and image making. But when finally um, the, the election happened in 2020 and I saw how he, how he dealt with that result and then the attack on Congress by him, him telling people to do that. Mm -hmm. Then I, I felt vindicated. I'm like, okay, there is everything I've been talking for the last four years. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then putting it finally into a book, I, I felt totally at ease with, with it all. You know, he gets elected. So many things happen. Charlottesville, et cetera. And, you know, you're not on the fringes anymore. You're on the cover of Time. You're on the cover of Der Spiegel. And again, people listening, like, just Google these images really quick. You'll see them. You'll recognize them. You'll feel the visceral gut punch of, oh, shit, he's right. <laughs> you know, that was my reaction when I saw these covers right. before I knew who you were, you know. What what now? Like, okay, we're, we're marching towards this again. It, it almost yeah. seems inevitable. Uh, I think, I think we're, we're in a very dangerous time, probably dan more dangerous than, be than before, because this country having witnessed what happened on mm -hmm. January 6, 2021, where there was basically a, a coup attempt, is considering by Democratic vote, voting the same guy to go in and do the same thing. So it tells you that a lot of people are okay with this. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are okay with a coup attempt. Yeah, I mean, dude, for me, it was, you know, 9-11 was scary. I was in my 20s. 
that was from outside. Mm -hmm. And January 6th was a scarier day for me. Yeah. Yeah. Because I didn't recognize. And there's always been those elements of my country, even, you know, during the Trump era. But, but yeah, that was arguably one of the scariest days for me. Yeah. And now you look at all these people and, 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 uh, not just the voters, but the politicians are just, yeah, well, it's okay. We can, you know, like sweep to the side. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, what people don't necessarily understand is that these, you know, movements say like the Cuban revolution and, uh, and take over of a dick, you know, a dictator. There's been a dictator in Cuba for dictators for, for 60 years now. Mm-hmm. And, um, Nazi party and, and yeah, the National Hitler Socialist Party in Germany. All yeah. of these things, all of these things took like a, they don't happen overnight. They t- they take ten years to develop, right? Yeah. Uh, the 30s, that's what Germany was going through. Cuba in the early 50s is when the uh, Castro started to try to get power, but then he was jailed and sent to Mexico. He regrouped. He came back. So this is a process. So we're like in the middle of a process right now, you know. Um, and I think people think that January 6 was just a a random event. No, this is this is the way that uh, Trump and his followers and and, not, and and Republicans want to function. Let's say, what if he becomes president again? And who knows what he does? But then, what happens at the four year mark where he has to run again? You think he's going to have an election? Yeah, you know. So it's 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 all. A, it takes a, a long time. And uh, that's how countries get changed forever. And I think we're just taking it, um, again, not taking it as seriously as we should. Yeah, yeah. History has a way of repeating itself, but we sometimes think we're better now. We know more now. We're yeah, so they're, much more they're, evolved. I do think there's, no, I think there's like an American hubris about, about everything. But in this case, it's this American feeling, well, it's not going to yeah. happen here. We can't, we're not that. You know, we're not that. And that's, let's take another Another risk. Yeah. Um, let's take it to the edge again uh, and see see if uh, if we can, you know. And, and I don't, I don't like I understand if someone was like worth it. Mm-hmm. Jesus, you know. I, I gotta ask, kind of a related question. So, look, no diaspora is a monolith, right? Indian Americans don't all think the same way. Black Americans don't think the same way. And Cuban Americans, by no measure, also vote down the same kind of like path. There's such a diversity of point of views within the Cuban-American diaspora, depending on when you came over, how you came over, but across the political spectrum. And, and something something that really kind of resonated with me is in the height of your Trump-era activism, you talk about your parents' reaction mm-hmm. to your work, specifically your mom. And I think about it, in the Indian-American community, you know, how people are reacting to Modi, depending on what generation, when you came over, were you born here, were you born there? Right. There's just a complete family's not talking to each other. I literally stopped using WhatsApp in my family groups because of this, right? Okay. How how has that been playing out, you know, with your parents, their their reaction to your magazine covers, their reaction to this graphic novel? I mean, start start small with your family, with your parents, and then what's been your observation of right. of your community? Well, uh, I mean, uh, in, one thing is in the book is one time where I, I had just made it, and I think it was a new Trump cover for Time yeah, or something yeah. like that. And and I had put it up on Facebook and within like a minute, my mom called me. And her first question is, when did you become a cheap artist? Yeah. And I was like, wow, you know, mom. Yeah. You know? And I, I hung up on her and then I unbranded um, her from Facebook. Wow. <laughs> basically, 
like you don't you don't have the right to look at my work if what if if, if what you're going to be doing is calling me out of the blue and you know doing that. And then again, and worth noting, like not just any parent, and we're both parents. You do anything for your children. We have these expectations, right? But revisit what we just talked about twenty minutes. So your parent, everything on the line for you guys, right? right. So that the connection is deep. Yeah, yeah, I know, of course. And, but I think, you know, there's other things involved. She probably did, didn't want me to be uh, doing things that caused, you know, would bring me danger. I think that was one of her concerns. So, the, you know, there's no way to know exactly the reasonings for why parents do think something. <laughs> but that's what occurred. So, but we eventually started talking again. And then, you know, um, again, my, uh, as you say that the population is, is split, you know, like something, I think it's say it's 55, 45, 65, 60, 40 or something. But within people themselves, they're split. They change their minds all the time. And that's the, the thing that's different sometimes, at least within the Cuban population, as opposed to sometimes America. Americans are very set in their, I am this, I am Republican, I am a Democrat for life. And, we, and I got I to gotta probe there. When you say Americans, do you mean like multi-generational Americans? Like, like, yeah, like people that have been here for a long time. Like, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, they've been here for a while. Yeah, you know, my, my wife's family been here, was, you know, since the, well, probably the early 19th century or 30, 40s. But they set, they're set in the political ways that set. Mm-hmm. My family just goes back and forth all the time. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll vote one way, then they'll vote another. So within a few years, uh, my mother started seeing that there was a problem in, in this guy. Uh, I think COVID, the way he treated COVID, uh, woke up their eye, you know, woke them up because it affected them because they're older people. And then the the insurrection was the final, you know, nail in the coffin that, that it was like, well, this is this wrong, wrong way to go. You know, so they might vote Democrat now or not. It, it's well, been, you know, here's been, been, something you said in your book. It was so profound. Because of what they lived through, right? One power coming, one party coming into power, yeah. Castro. <laughs> I, I don't know if you're talking about your parents or Cubans. Like this is my sister. My sister yeah, is yeah. that. Yeah, they they just switch switch who they're voting for every time because you never want any one party to have power. Yeah, yeah. I, I was talking to her once, and, and she's like, "I don't, I don't really pay attention to the topics. I just don't want another dictator, so I vote for the opposite party all the time." Wow. So everyone has their own kind of ways they they deal with the way they vote, which is fine. But you know, overall, and, and what I, I try to explain to people here is that as they try to understand the Cuban mm-hmm. diaspora and what's happening in Miami, mm-hmm. and we get to the name of this podcast, the minority, modern minority. So, so this idea that, that Cubans, so, so from the outside in is this idea, Cubans are minorities. Why would they not vote with the minority? And you are assuming that we think of ourselves as minorities, huh. and we don't. Cubans, especially those who are white or appear white or whatever, we, I've, my family was always white. We were white people living in Cuba. We came to Miami. We were white families, et cetera, et cetera. I never felt like a minority because I was a major, majority in Cuba. We were all Cuban. Yep. I was a majority. Uh, we were a majority in Miami. Mm-hmm. So the the power center of the of the majority in Miami is Cubans. It's only when I came up here that I was uh, saying, to New York. Would you like, yeah, would you like yeah to New York City and uh, college at Pratt? It's like, would you like to be at the Minority Students League or something? I'm like, what? What do you mean? What? Do you, I'm not a minority. Like, oh yes, you are. You're you're a, a Latino, and, and I'm like, oh, I don't even feel like a Latino. I'm just Cuban, you know. Yeah. So there isn't that sort of thinking down there. 
they vote as a majority uh, white people, yeah. you know, which which is not very different from Georgia or from Texas or from, uh, say, a a family in Wisconsin whose entire lineage goes back to Sweden or Switzerland yeah. or whatever. Our, my family's lineage pretty much goes to Spain, except for maybe there's some indigenous family member, mm-hmm. even indigenous. So there, so there's there's a an, a misunderstanding, or or I think this country, the United States, tries to label everyone all the time, <laughs> you know. So it's it's minority, or it's AAPI, or it's this, or it's yeah, that, yeah. or POC. And I have friends that are black, and they're like, "Do not call me a POC. I am not a POC. I'm a black man." Yeah, yeah. My black man experience is different from an Asian yeah. person's experience, and and I think I would like this country, the United States, to start talking about people and groups as who they are, not as these vast collections of colored people. Yeah, yeah. I have a problem with that. If we Take the time to talk about uh, Italians as Italians, French as French, yeah. British as British. We should speak about people as Mexicans, Colombians, Cubans. Not as Latinos. No, not, not as, as Latinos and not as this yeah, because yeah. Yeah. there is so much difference between a, a, a Cuban background and, to an Argentinian background. Argentina is like another world, you know? It, it's very different. But just because we speak Spanish, we don't say... Europeans, generally. Yeah. Well, no, you're you're hitting... So the the premise of the show, right, was like, Sharon and I, how do we... Through understanding of individual experiences, that's, that's in my mind, how we, quote-unquote, solve racism, right? Like, mm-hmm. Jerry Seinfeld once said, I never understand racism. Why hate a whole group of people when you can hate an individual? Yeah. <laughs> and I always thought that was really profound because, yeah, same thing, man. Like, my wife is Chinese American and I'm Indian and we're both Asians, but man, there's night and day between oh, those two. Oh, of course. And, then, and going to India and like the difference between a Punjabi and a Gujarati and a someone who speaks Telugu. Yeah. It, there's this tapestry, right? But what, what one thing I do acknowledge is we're all a majority in some cases and we're all a minority, right? So mm-hmm. I'm a straight male who's not a Muslim, right? Like there's a lot of majority stuff there. But there's a minority in the sense that when I go to the airport with my beard, mm-hmm, right? right? Sometimes as a as a kid, because I was trying to acclimate into Alabama where I grew up, you know, I thought of myself as a white guy because I listened to Weezer and the Beatles, right? Right, right. And when I, I'm about to go back to India with my daughter, and I'm going to stand out like a sore thumb, even though I'm surrounded by my people. Right, 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 right. right. And actually, I want to ask that that that's a to kind of shift gears completely. What's been the reaction to your book? So you've been working on this for ten or. 12 years, mm-hmm. your family's known. And when I say your family, I mean your parents, your sister, not just your wife and kids, right? Before the book came out, before the reception came out, mm-hmm. what did people think about you working on this and what little they were seeing of this? I don't think that they, um, you know, my uh, my family is not really in the details of what I do, mm. fortunately. <laughs> they've ne- they've There's never been that much i mean they they know that i'm an artist they but but i'm i'm their son and they just want me home to hang out and, and like eat yeah <laughs> it is not oh you're working on a book yeah okay you know but it is not their main focus so i i interview them i ask them questions i say i'm working on something and then i'll call them again i have a question hey who was that guy that came to our house that day so, oh that's such and such you know i'm so i'm doing this for the book but 
they didn't really know the entire, you know, thrust of the book or how it was all playing. But, but you know, now that they're looking at it, they just yeah. go, they're like, yeah, accurate. That happened. Yes, yes. <laughs> they're loving the um, sort of the attention it's gotten and they're having fun with it. And and even, you know, the stuff that's in here that's controversial. Uh, I've my You know, my mom hasn't called me mad about anything. She's like, no, it's okay. You know, like they're very, if things occurred in life, they're okay talking about it and, and they can. Yeah. You're being truthful. You're being truthful. Yeah. As long as it's, 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 it's correct. And, and there are sometimes where, where, you know, I, I depicted it sometimes badly, you know, something that occurred and my mom's like, Oh, you don't understand. It was much worse than that. This other thing happened. I'm like, Oh, wow. You didn't tell me. Wow. Yeah, so yeah. there's even more that's triggered in their minds now. Once they, they read it, they're like, Oh yeah. And then the other thing occurred. So. Uh, as I read it, you have two little, you have two girls, right? Yeah. Uh, how old are they now? They're uh, 19 and 14. Okay. Yeah, you're in it then right mm -hmm. now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what's been their reaction to the book? Oh, uh, um, they loved it. I mean, uh, my 19-year-old, um, actually, my 19-year-old helped me finish coloring a lot of this stuff. She was, she was really in the middle of, That's so of, cool. of working with me for part of it when, before she had to go back to uh, college. She's going to art school too. And yeah, they've been fans of graphic novels for a long time. So the fact that I made one and that they were in it in a couple That's of pages, cool. you know, yeah. uh, they, they really got a kick out of that. And, and I really did want it, want to create something that became, you know, a document for them, a, a place where they would see their great grandparents and my grand and their grandparents and, uh, a place for them to learn uh, some of, uh, their own history. Uh, I, you know, having grown up here, they don't really have that much of a direct connection to Cuba. Mm -hmm. And lately, especially my uh, my older daughter has gotten much more interested in the details and, and history and traditions of Cuba, and uh, it's it's been nice to see. Yeah, uh, in the book, you um you share a moment when you took them back to Cuba. I think maybe mm -hmm. a couple of times. Yeah. How old were they on their first trip back? I think that was in twenty fourteen. So they were probably about ten and six around there. Yeah. Or ten and five. Yeah, and it was it was quite a you know an adventure. <laughs> it's funny because I'm about to take my daughter, mm. who's almost eight, taking her back to India in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And my first trip to India was when I was six. Okay, and I'm just curious, what was their reaction? Obviously, and you depict the environment that they experience, right? The people they see, the family they see, the yeah, the socioeconomic conditions. What was their reaction to that coming from you know the suburbs of? the tri-state area. Yeah, I think they were kind of okay with Havana, with the city. <laughs> but when I took them to the countryside, to my town, to El Gabriel, yeah. it was like a day and they were like, this is crazy <laughs> because they had never seen so many like wild animals roaming around, you know, dogs and cows and bulls. There are no paved streets, so everything's just dirt and, and you know, the muck of houses, you know, leaching out, you know, who knows what, sewage or whatever. So I had my, actually the younger one, uh, she was five. I had to carry her on my shoulders throughout town. Wow. She would not walk. <laughs> she was like, no, no, I don't want to. No, the, the floor is dirty. Mm. And it is a, a result of growing up in, you know, suburban America where everything's super duper clean, which is also, you know, the main thing I noticed when I arrived in this country, how everything is so prim and proper. And it's not like that in, in my uh, town at all. But one of the, one of the things that I, that I noticed we were, we were just at my family's house one night, right? I, I, cause I was doing a, an exhibit in Havana in the city and I took the car, uh, a, a bus to, um, to our town and 
We're going to stay there overnight. And in the middle of the night, around three in the morning, I'm awakened by uh, my my five-year-old with a, like really severe stomach pains. And she was crying and crying. And I called my aunt. I said, we, we, you know, we have to take her to the clinic. And she just goes, Del, what clinic? Wow. I'm like, we don't have a clinic in town anymore. And I said, okay, well, well, then the hospital. I was like, well, the hospital is about, you know, four towns over and there are no cars to take you at this time. So it was for the first time I got like this sense of what it was like to live in this place with a little kid, which is was my, my parents' experience of me doing that. I was, I was sick all the time when I was a kid because I was in the streets eating who knows what. And that tension of having a kid and not having a car to take them somewhere, not having a clinic in town, it's really, it's very tense, you know. Uh, it's a very difficult experience to raise children, you know, in those environments. I would imagine that their perspective on the world changed after that trip. Yeah, yeah, no, they they really. Uh, it's it's it was great to bring them because they have a uh, they immediately got a bigger appreciation for what they have. Yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, and and not just the things, but also the freedoms and 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 the way we function. They got hints, and and I explained to them, look. You know, that's the military yeah. watching over the crowd. Yeah. Every, you know, in the plazas, there were there were uh, police and military installed there. So they got a sense of what that was like. Yeah. You know, I, I like to say sometimes, and I, I was born here, right? But like, if you live in the West, and it's not a, a judgment call, but like kind of won the genetic lottery in terms of those freedoms or those things that we really do take for granted until you can see it. Right. Like my first trip to India when I was six, you know, I'd been to Venezuela and seen the machine guns at the airport. And yeah, but at the same time, you know, sometimes I'm at Grand Central in New York City and, you know, you see the National Guardsmen with the machine guns, too. And I'm like, right, right, right. Yeah. And that's that's actually surprising when that happens. You're like, well, OK. Yeah. Um, But the reasoning, the reasons are different. Yeah. <laughs> generally. But, but what, I, what I was saying is like those images don't exist in this country, you know, but then when you see National Guardsmen at the Capitol in front of metal. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and that's when, that's what uh, was so upsetting to me is basically seeing, uh, you know, what I grew up with. But there, there is a lot of, I have conversations with my friends here and like, what do you mean? We, we're being spied on all the time. I'm like, listen, <laughs> you don't understand what being spied on all the time actually is. Yeah, it's one thing to be spied on for selling you advertising. Yes. It's another thing. Yes, and it, it's it's just, Anytime people do things like that, it, it, it just generally bothers me because you're diminishing what actual, you know, dictatorship, what, what, what actual, the actual things that are happening in places like Burma or Pakistan or Venezuela by saying, well, I feel like I'm being, you know, uh, spied on constantly. No, it's different. You don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What's one thing that your kids would say they've learned about you or learned from you? Well, I think that the, the, thing that I I, and I try to pass down and I think they picked up on is this idea of believing that, that you know if you just do your work and you do what you feel is right and uh, what you're passionate about things work out and I I think that's my main focus is not uh, not getting too concerned about uh, where, where life is going just function and be good to other people and and be honest with your work and things will, will happen, uh, like kismet, like, like things were meant to be. Yeah. Uh, I try to do, uh, get that across to them as much as possible. 
and I know NPR uh, totally stole this question that we ask all of our guests, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> if, if you could go back and talk to that, that little boy in El Gabriel, uh, you know, who doesn't know what's in front of him hmm. with boats and with art school and with <laughs> magazine covers, what would you tell that little boy? You know, I think it's is is just to uh to to let him know that things are gonna be all right. I you know, if you just keep at it, if you keep doing what you wanna do, which again is what I try to get get across to my kid. I was very scared, concerned, wondering what was gonna happen to me once I arrived here and then uh what I was gonna become as an adult. My my main focus, you know, once I arrived here and having gone through so many questions and, and interviews or dealt with this book, I've thought about this a bit more, why I made this, you know. And my main thing was that I did not want everything that I had lost to to be in vain. Mm-hmm. I lost my grandparents, I lost my family, I lost my friends, and I, and I didn't want to come here and not make something with that, right? So since I was about nine, ten years old, I was the most... You know, I went to every class. I I tried to get the best grades. I I I was thinking so much about who I was going to become. I wanted to become something. I didn't want to have lost my entire family and then done nothing with it. So everything you see, if you see my book, if you see other things, is it, sort of like honoring my what what happened to my family and then why it was split up, and trying to make the experience and the difficulties worth some. And I'll, I want to shift gears a little bit. If we've got a few more minutes, do you want to have a little fun and do a little bit of a speed round? Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, All right. Mm-hmm. And these are just meant to be some fun questions mm-hmm. as we race towards the end of our chat. Um, but what's one thing about you that no one expects? Um, that I'm funny. <laughs> Everyone thinks I'm an angry political, uh, and I'm just, I'm just an idiot most of the time. But, yeah, That's awesome. What's a what's a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Book would be was Night by Elie Wiesel, and uh, a movie was Cinema Paradiso. That that film like really uh, made an impact on me when I was younger. Nice. When did you see that? How old were you? I was in college, actually. I was okay. Like I think freshman year of college, and and at the cinema in at Pratt, and I started bawling, yeah. crying. What's your favorite mom dish? Oh, oxtail stew. What's your least favorite food? Oh, my least favorite food? Oh, it'd just be like a bad sandwich or something. <laughs> have you have you seen uh, the meme on uh, Chinese social media where they're making fun of what Americans eat for lunch? <laughs> well, I know I actually I did try uh my my agent, God love her. She's like, You really you know, took me to a sushi restaurant to celebrate the book and she's an expert at this stuff. She's like, you have you tried urchin? I'm like, No. She's like, you got to try it. And I, I tried it. It was awful. Yeah, so I'd say urchin now. Okay. Who's someone out there that you would want to talk to on a podcast? Someone out there that I would want to talk to on a podcast. I always, uh, my heroes are artists, you know? Yeah. So I would probably say David Hockney. Well, why, why would you want to talk to him or what would you ask him? I haven't, you know, it's, it's just, you know, I, I've just, uh, been inspired by him since I was in college, and and the way he yeah. he thinks, the way he changes, uh, the way he works, you know, and 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 I I have a lot of respect. I think he's about eighty five now. Yeah, just how he just keeps on going. He doesn't stop. Yeah, 
And I, 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 it's the kind of thing that I would like to do in my life is just continue making art. Last question. And I, I know you take a little umbrage with this term, but what does being a modern minority mean for you? I, uh, I, I don't really know. I mean, I think possibly it's just that the word, the word minority feels like, you know, of, of, of the past or something. And, and yeah, we are becoming very powerful. So at what time do we, and that's where the modern comes, right? To me. Yeah. The word modern becomes like we're, we're taking over. We're, we're making companies. We're basically living our lives. And uh, maybe at some point we'll drop the minority thing and just become people that are running things. And, and, uh, yeah. and, and I, I just, I don't like in general dividing people up into this group or that group. And, and yeah. I, I, I want to just, you know, be all Americans or Cuban American, Indian American or whatever it is, but it is, yeah. it, it, we're all in this together. And I think once you figure that out, you're going to solve a lot of problems here in the United States and in many other places. That's the right answer, man. <laughs> that, that's amazing. You know, thank you. Just, I mean, literally, I only discovered your book somehow in the last few weeks. I read it a couple of days ago. It, Arguably the best book I've read this year, and now I'm a fan of just your work and your take. And just thank you for continuing to put this sort of stuff out there. It, it means a lot. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ModMinPod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Love.